You can keep your Bibles open to that gospel passage. That's my preaching text for this morning from John 4. Um, Yesterday, I read an interesting thing about uh, Green Cove Springs, the spring that's 10 miles south of here. Um, The historians and the archaeologists and scholars suspect that people lived around that spring as long ago as 7,000 years Natives were there drawn to the warm mineral waters. And more recently, I found something interesting that in the 19th century, some really smart marketer decided that that was actually Ponce de Leon's Fountain of Youth. And people came from all over the place to see it. And there were a dozen hotels built and there's some of the effects are still down, the, the uh, artifacts of that are still down there. That people would come on vacation down to Green Cove Springs to the Fountain of Youth, or supposed Fountain of Youth. Now think about that for a minute. What is this great attraction to this Fountain of Youth idea? Well, it's, it's ultimate satisfaction, right? It's the end of corruption and decay. It's perpetual life. It assumes that somehow it can bring satisfaction, And I start off with Green Cove Springs because we have a text here where Jesus comes to the well of Jacob and offers living water and offers that kind of satisfaction we're looking for. So we're going to consider this woman from the well in uh, in Samaria, in um, uh, Sychar is the name of the town. And I want to ask the question of how did she end up going from public shame to joyful witness? She starts in public shame and then ends in giving witness to Christ to the whole town, and they come out, and Jesus spends two days with them. Well, let's start with the shame piece. Why could it be that this woman ends up with six men, five ex-husbands, and she's living in sin with a man she's not married to at this point in the story? I think it's a question of satisfaction. And it might be hers, it might be those husbands, but somebody was not satisfied and was looking for more. And it led to divorce, and it led to a new, another one, and going through a cycle of these relationships. She was longing for something. And what we find is that Jesus enters into her shame and our shame and offers satisfaction. So satisfaction to replace shame. So today we can think through that topic of satisfaction, and I want to start with this question for us. What do you want? What do you want? Are you self-aware enough right now to be aware of your desires? What are you looking for? And I, and I don't mean like eternally. You know the right answer because we're in church, right? So you thought, I know what I'm supposed to say. But I want you to just be like candidly honest. What are, what's your heart's desire right now? What are you looking for? What do you want? What are you pursuing? And I, I, we often hear these statements about heaven where people project their desires onto a, satisfi- a, sat- a perfectly satisfied version of it. So think about people talking of heaven, or they'll say, oh, that would be so heavenly. You know, let's say golf is your, your vice, and so you think, oh, it would be heaven to be able to play perfect courses 27 holes a day for the rest of my life for eternity. Or let's say food. Oh, it'd be heavenly if I could eat whatever I wanted and just enjoy the food and have none of the negative consequences, the, the, the heart disease and the overweight and all that stuff. Whatever I want. Fill in the blank. People say this kind of stuff all the time. It would be heavenly if. And they are projecting their desires on to what really they're wanting is they want to be satisfied. We want to be satisfied. We are longing for something. So back up to the woman at the well for a minute. 
Now, I, I know I'm speculating here because we don't have all the details of what's gone on, but the only thing I can come up with is that somebody was not satisfied. Either all five of her first husbands were not satisfied and she just simply got rejected, or she wasn't satisfied and then the marriage failed. And, you know, we, we have to speculate here to understand maybe what's gone on in the, in the background, but it's not that hard to do so. And we know what it's like to want something and then have it fail. And we know that kind of longing for something and idealized dreams that don't pan out in the end. And we're left with frustration. In her case, she's left also with public shame. So this woman comes to a well at noon. And all of the commentaries, all the scholars point out that's not normal. The normal time to get water for the day, if you live in a in the old days when you don't have running water, would be first thing in the morning, you would go to the well. If it's hot that time of year, you'd go early to beat the heat, but you'd also get the water you need for that day to make breakfast, to wash up, to do everything. And then you would do the same in the evening after dinner to do your dishes and to clean up and get ready for night. You wouldn't go at noon and you definitely wouldn't go alone. The watering hole, so to speak, was a social thing. You would go with a group of people and it would be a fellowship time as well as getting a chore done. This woman comes alone, she comes at high noon. The reason we speculate, and I think accurately, is because of the shame, because she's a bad word in that town, because of her broken relationships. And so she doesn't have community, she's not accepted, she's living marginalized. And so she has to go get her water midday. Now enter into that situation Jesus. And he comes up because he's tired, he's passing through there, and he rests, and the disciples go into town to buy food. Normally, they wouldn't even make eye contact. Just culturally, they wouldn't even make eye contact. In fact, it would be weird for a Jew to even be in Samaria, because they would have gone around it to avoid that. You have to understand that there, were, there was a lot of history there where they were so similar and yet different, the Jews and the Samaritans. When the northern kingdom was exiled to Assyria, the Assyrians intermarried with the Jews and then repopulated the land. So they were kind of of mixed heritage. And if you were a pure Jew, you would look up down upon your neighbors in Samaria and think, you know, you're like, you're, you're mixed, you're, you're impure. And then they, of course, had differing opinions on which mountain. Is it in Jerusalem or is it Mount Gerizim? The Samaritans only read the first five books of the Bible. They didn't read the kings in the history. So they debated on what was God's authoritative word. So they were so close and had so many things in common that they had a lot of conflict. So here comes this Jewish rabbi walking through this town of Sychar, which is weird. And then he finds a woman there alone, which is weird. And then he talks to her, which is even weirder. And so she says, how is it that you, a Jew, can ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink of water? Everything's wrong with this. This is so strange that you're asking. And, and, and then when later when his disciples come back and they see him talking with this woman, we didn't read that far, but if you kept reading, it says in verse 27, just then the disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek? And why are you talking with her? They didn't even want to ask the question because it was so weird for a man to talk to a woman that's not his wife in public. That was just, you know, we, we do that all the time. It's normal for us, but it was weird for them. So Jesus is breaking all kinds of cultural norms to bring the gospel to someone who's marginalized. Now, let me just back up for a minute. I said that Jesus enters our shame to bring us satisfaction. Ultimately, that's on the cross. But let's just immediately notice that if he was going to come to the town and bring the good news to them, if you were to do it, let's say, how would you do it? 
I would probably, thinking like, you know, in, in normal, in the flesh, I would think, go to the town mayor and say, I've got good news for the whole town. Gather all the people and I, I have an announcement to make. That's not his approach. He finds a marginalized woman who's living in shame and he brings the gospel to her. And then through her, good news comes to anyone in that town that would have it. Jesus goes, he's not put off by our shame and our sin. He enters into the midst of it to bring salvation. That's who he is. Look through the whole scriptures, you see a God that has compassion on those of us that are suffering under our sin and our failures. He comes and brings good news. So, give me a drink of water. How is it that you can ask me for a drink of water? And then he starts to give information that if she's willing, she could re-engage with him and start to learn, who is this? And eventually she's going to move from shame to joy. But watch what happens. Jesus says, if you knew who it was that's asking you for a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. There's an invitation placed right there. And then she says, are you greater? I mean, this is just, John is such a masterful storyteller. Masterful. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well? Jacob's one of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob is also named Israel. It's where the nation gets its name. The 12 tribes of Israel are the 12 descendants of Jacob. Are you greater than Jacob? You know, I, I wish I could see his face when she asked that. She's probably snickering. He's probably like, yeah, actually I am. You know, I am greater than, than Jacob. I, I made him and all of this and you. But, you know, he, he, we don't know. We don't know what he looked like. But if you drink this water from this well, you'll be thirsty again. But if you drink the water that I give living water, you'll never thirst again. And then when she asks, sir, give me this water, now he's not giving her H2O. He starts to give her life by breaking into the situation. He exposes something of her situation and reveals something of himself. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. A prophetic word comes. You're right. You've had five, and the man you live with now is not your husband. She's taken aback by that because how would he possibly know that? I see you're a prophet, sir. She recognizes she is in the midst of a prophet. Now, Dan opened the service by pointing us to something that St. Augustine once said, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. That's why I ask you what you want, because I'm wondering, how restless are you, or are you finding the rest that the Lord is offering? At its root, every single desire that we have is a desire for God. It's just gone off track. So why is she with a sixth man? Well, she has a desire. She longs for satisfaction. She longs for community. She longs to have love and be accepted. This is normal. But that's a desire that we have ultimately for God. But what happens is we seek to satisfy ourselves instead of having God satisfy those desires. And so we end up in sin, which then means we end up in shame, which then means we are isolated from God and oftentimes from other people because of that, and a cycle begins. Now I'm even thirstier, so to speak. Now I have even more desire, so now I try to find it and satisfy it, and I end up in sin, and this cycle of shame, sin, and shame just keeps happening. And she's caught up in that. Every desire at its root is a desire for God, and he longs to satisfy now, what we do with those desires and the situation we find ourselves in varies. If you're what C.S. Lewis calls the fool, the fool blames the stuff. You need more and better. I need a better husband. I need more whatever. If I could just get the right car, the right job, the right stuff, we, we 
The fool blames the stuff and says, it's not a heart problem, it's a stuff problem. If I just had more and better, then I would be satisfied. I mean, it's just like the celebrities who have the resources to get more and presumably better. And so they do, and it never satisfies, and it ends up in the tabloids, and we read that, and we, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. More and better. That's the foolish approach. The other approach, which C.S., I'm I'm quoting from Mere Christianity or referring to that, C.S. Lewis points out that the sensible man, the disillusioned man, lowers his or her expectations. We just stop thinking that this life can possibly satisfy This is as good as it gets. Let's just be okay with that. And generally, when we do that, we get by all right. So we don't have huge expectations, but we don't have huge disappointment either. And that would be fine if all this, uh, if this life is all there is, but it's not. There's more. And so there's a third approach, the Christian approach, Lewis would call it. The Christian approach is recognizing that all desires exist because there is some satisfaction out there. And he gives three kind of illustrations. He says, a baby has hunger and there is such a thing as milk. A duckling has a desire to swim. There is such a thing as water. Men and women have a desire for sex. There is such a thing that God invented, which is sex. And so every desire has some outlet. And then this is the conclusion. If we have a desire that can't be met, If I find, here's a direct quote, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. These earthly pleasures are meant to arouse a higher desire. This is fitting for Lent as we consider our lives, our habits, and the goal is not to squelch desire. The goal is to be able to receive the blessings of God with, as they say, with glad and generous hearts in Acts chapter two, when the Holy Spirit came upon those first Christians gathered. They shared their wealth, they shared their good with one another, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were able to enjoy the blessings that God was giving, but they weren't tempted to worship those blessings or to think they could be satisfied by them. They allowed the blessings to point them to the blesser who ultimately will satisfy these desires, all of them, for us, in the perfect way, without sin and shame. That's ultimately where it's going. And so, there's two conclusions to that. One is, we should never despise the gifts, the desires and the things that can temporarily satisfy those. We should receive them gladly, joyfully. And then we also should never mistake them for the real thing that they point to. Don't be tempted to worship the gift, the blessing. Whatever the desire is, receive receive the partial satisfaction now knowing that it's pointing to an ultimate one later. Let it, let it stir up in you a longing for more, not less. Long for more that the Lord has for you. Now, the, the question, are you greater than our father Jacob? Again, John, masterful storyteller. A similar one comes up a couple of chapters later. It comes up uh, chapter eight, um, verse 53. The Jews asked Jesus, are you greater than our father Abraham? Again, Jesus would have, I think this time he was irritated. I don't think he was snickering at this point because they, they actually had already come down to a place of conclusion. You are not is their answer and we're gonna kill you for claiming that you are. And so they did not draw in like this woman did. They did not pursue this living water and so Jesus didn't reveal the truth to them and didn't give them the satisfaction they wanted. Instead what happens is he goes to the cross, he dies. Now what the woman does is she's, she wonders, are you greater than Jacob? And she responds by saying, sir, give me this water. 
And then he shows her the error of pursuing satisfaction in the wrong way. Then she asks him about worship. Now, she's recognized that a prophet is in her midst, and so it's fitting to talk to this rabbi about themes of worship. I mean, that's what the whole thing comes down to, right? What do we worship? How should we worship? Where should we worship? And he brings up the Holy Spirit directly. A time is coming when not on this mountain or in Jerusalem will will the true worshipers worship the Lord. He's seeking such who will worship him in spirit and in truth. That's what worship is supposed to be about. And then she says something that's fascinating. I know when the Messiah comes, he'll explain all this to you. And it's at that moment that he fully reveals himself to her. The one who's speaking to you, I am the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. The reason he had to go through Samaria was because he was becoming too well-known down in, the, in Jerusalem. So he was going up to Galilee. It's fascinating that he would share with the Samaritan woman that he's the Messiah. His own disciples were still st- starting to figure that out. He just comes right out and shares it. And then she goes into the town and says, come see someone, come see, could this be the Christ? She's so excited about it. The response now is she's gone from shame to joyful witness. Now, Jesus, what he's done is not just come to those of us that are in sin and shame. He actually takes sin and shame on himself for us. So, I I don't know if you realize this, but when the Romans would crucify someone, they didn't have a a nice loincloth tied around themselves. They were stripped naked and vulnerable and exposed and hung there in absolute, total exposure because they wanted it to be shameful. They wanted people to look and kind of wince at the, the, the... awfulness of that kind of death. Jesus bore public shame, and he had the shame of being presumed to be a condemned criminal. And he wasn't up there defending himself. So he took our sin and our shame upon himself so that we could be forgiven and that we could then have this new living water, this new life that he offers us. He says, come to me. Come to me if you're thirsty, and I will give you a drink. Think for a minute about a a spring. We, We had a uh, um, there's a mystery in my yard I discovered this week. We had a broken pipe, a sprinkler pipe, and when zone two went on, the living water just started coming up in my side yard. So I dug up the plant that was on top of it, and when I got down there, there was a th- threaded sprinkler head that was totally missing. It wasn't broken, it just wasn't there. And I don't know who took it out, but it hasn't been like that forever or we would have had a flood in our yard. But the thing is, if there's no head and there's just an opening and you try and put dirt and a plant on it, you can't stop that. That water will just come up and it brings white sand with it too and spreads it all over your yard and then your water bill goes through the roof and it's just like, if this living water is in you, even though the world is hard, life is tough, hardships happen, the Christian has this thing that's welling up. The Holy Spirit is in us and it keeps coming through. So we experience joy because it gives us this hope of more to come. We've got God's life in us. So what can the world do to me? I have the living God in me. I know the Lord. That kind of joy. Whereas before I was in, in sin and shame, I've been forgiven because of the cross and I have the spirit of God, the living water. Sir, give me this water, she says. And he does. And so she, she has joy and she witnesses in the town how powerful that transition is. Let me conclude by telling you something that happened to me one time that was 
telling, actually, in a good way. I was in Sheffield, England. I was on a study sabbatical. Heather and I were there for three months, and it was a very prophetic church we were in. The Holy Spirit was doing all sorts of interesting things, and we were in this worship service that was fairly small and unstructured, and, and a very charismatic leader was praying and kind of speaking words of encouragement to us, and he said, heaven is open right now. The Lord says to you, ask me whatever you wish. And I was like, ah, oh, the moment. It's like right now, it's opened up. What am I going to ask for? I couldn't think of anything. And I, so I just said, I just want more of you, Lord, which of course is the right answer, but it accidentally came out of me because in that moment, what could I possibly have asked for that would have satisfied? Nothing except him. Nothing except him. And the truth of the matter is because of the cross, heaven is always open. He's always listening to us. He always wants to bless. He always wants to enter into our sin and shame and bring joy and bring satisfaction. That's who he is. He shows us our, our sin. He enters our shame. And then he gives us satisfaction through himself. So Lent, consider your desires. Go back to that first question. What do you want? I want to encourage you to bring that desire and all its twisted, sinful manifestations Bring it to the Lord and say, Lord, show me the root of this desire and then satisfy me with yourself. Bring those desires to him and let him give you the rest that you might enter into that kind of rest and have a joyful witness and look forward to a day when you will actually be ultimately satisfied. He's good. Jesus enters our shame and brings us satisfaction. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to come and enter into our shame. Lord, we give you our desires. We give them back to you, trusting that you've, you're the one who planted them there. Would you take our hearts? Would you help us to, to seek you above all? We ask for your blessing in this season of Lent. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.